You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Today, we have a cracker for your delectation. Are you trying to decarbonize your supply chain without partnering with stakeholders? Well, in part two of today's episode, you'll hear why you should think again. But first up, we ask where next for technology and freight? Who's doing what in M&A? Why major players at sea and in the skies are scaling back ambitions? And we'll explore whether or not we are now seeing the normalization of freight rates. Shedding light on this freight miasma are the low stars Alex Lenane and Gavin Van Mol, Rin Atherton from All Seas Shipping Company, TAC Index's Peyton Burnett, Maritime Informatics Guru Dr. Michael Lind, serial investor, board member, and the former head of supply chain at the World Economic Forum, Wolfgang Lehmacher, and the Journal of Commerce's senior technology editor, Eric Johnson. Are shippers getting what they need? I would say in certain instances, yes, but it's a more confusing market. Before it was like, here, you're getting meat and potatoes. That's what you're getting for dinner tonight. There wasn't a whole lot of choice. Now it's you can have Mexican food, you can have Moroccan food, but I don't know, does Moroccan food fit what I need right now? Hello everybody, I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar Podcast. Hello and welcome all. Before we get started with this freighting rollick, if you don't know already, you can find all episodes of this podcast on your platform of choice and on the lodestar.com. And you can contact me with any thoughts, comments, or general banter at mikeking121 at gmail.com. With no further ado, let's get on with this. Today, I very luckily have two co-hosts, the Lodestar publisher and the Lodestar's managing editor. They are more commonly known as Alex Lenane and Gavin Van Marl. Hello, guys. Hi, Mike. Good afternoon, Mike. Gav, I'm going to go straight into this because I know you've been uh, traveling all around the world, selling your wares, <laughs> asking your questions. Now, you've been in Barcelona this week at Freight Tech as we speak today at the start of the fourth week of September. It was Chatham rules, which means you can't report specific comments, but you can reveal some of the key points that you took away from that conference that was organized by Freitos. So what takeaways were there? I think really Mike, the key takeaway was that you've got a lot of tech companies and tech providers looking to provide shippers and forwarders with a whole suite of services such as visibility, emission reporting, and of course, freight rate pricing. It's not entirely clear whether all of these solutions are what the market actually wants or needs. Certainly at the moment, there is a massive focus on freight rates. There's no question about that. But perhaps we can, we can turn to a colleague of mine, Eric Johnson, the senior technology editor of the JOC, who was also in attendance with me at the Freight Tech event in Barcelona. I mean, this is a guy that speaks to technology companies every day. And I asked him what his thoughts were about the current rate of take-up. There's no sort of um, magic bullet that has appeared that solved shippers' wants and needs. What has changed from, say, five, 10 years ago is, if you, so say you're a shipper and you want to procure freight from a carrier or an NVO or forwarder. 
you had two buckets of options, carrier, big NVO, and then, or NVO, and then branching into little NVO versus big NVO, right? And the manner in which you procured from them was pretty straightforward. You come to TPM and do negotiations there, or you email for a spot quote. The range of options for shippers now has exploded. Doesn't mean everybody is going to use one option. Doesn't mean that everybody's going to use all the options, but there's just a lot more choice. And, and a lot of it is because there's more price transparency, there's more tools, marketplaces, there's more online quoting tools that forwarders and carriers have made available to just go and, and do kind of like a self-serve approach. So your question was, are shippers getting what they need? I would say in certain instances, yes, but it's a more confusing market. So it's not, it's before it was like, here, you're getting meat and potatoes. That's what you're getting for dinner tonight. And there wasn't a whole lot of choice. Now it's, you can have Mexican food. You can have Moroccan food, but I don't know, does Moroccan food fit what I need right now? You know, so there can be a little bit of like paralysis due to the, the number of options available at any given time. If you think I need to figure out what I'm doing for this shipment at this moment, what course do I take? So I ask the carrier that I have a contract with to top me up with a few more containers on my allocation. Do I go to Freydos and buy it on a marketplace? Do I go direct to a 3PL and see what they're quoting me? Right. There's just a ton of different options. On the visibility side, it's gotten better, but we've heard some of this today. There's still so many holes and there's still a lot of data quality issues, right? Like that, that stuff hasn't really changed. So Gav, essentially pricing data on freight is driving, take up a lot of this tech. Yeah, I think it's not only the data on pricing, but it's also the ability to procure freights through online freight marketplaces. There's definitely much more usage of more shippers procuring freight through freight marketplaces or through other technology solutions. And the same with forwarders. Alex, we're going to hear what's going on in the air freight market or on air freight rates from TAC Index's Peyton Burnett shortly. But we've had quite a few major stories about this almost post-COVID slowdown in e-commerce demand that has impacted some of the bigger players out there. FedEx, I guess, has made the biggest splash. Yeah, I think it was the first sign of trouble on the balance sheet, really, FedEx. Low Star Premium called it an earnings miss of epic proportions. And FedEx said that their express division was hit by macroeconomic weakness in Asia, service challenges in Europe. It's going to ground aircraft. It's got lots of cost-cutting measures in place. But yeah, I think it's essentially down to a slowdown in e-commerce that other companies are starting to note as well. Um, Geodis said this week that the volumes it's transporting in e-commerce are not at this level of forecast that their customers told them it was going to be. Numura said that uh, China's express delivery turnover is down 22.6%. So there's quite a bit of, uh, yeah, there's a bit of scaling back going on. And Amazon Air is also pulling back on some of its expansion plans. Yeah, well, that's that along with FedEx is the other sort of big story, really. It's scaled back considerably from its initial growth plans. It's still growing, but its pace of growth is, is slowed considerably. So, I mean, between March and September, flights grew by about nearly 4%, but it was 14, over 14% before. So it's quite a step down, really, I would say. And I think it's just, people are saying it's just a combination of less consumer spending, high inventory levels. So it'll be quite interesting to see how um, 
if and when the air cargo peak season happens. Thank you very much for that, Alex. Okay, let's have a look at those rates. I'm delighted to welcome once more to the Lodestar podcast, TAC Index's Managing Director, Peyton Burnett. Hello, Peyton. Hi, Mike. Peyton, uh, glad to have you back again. We're continuing to see spot air freight rates uh, sliding. Is this post-COVID normalisation? Yes, that appears to be the general consensus in the market. A good chart for people to look at is the main Baltic index, BAI00. Just to give you some context, last year, year on year, that index was up 80%. And at the same time, this year, it's down 60%. And it seems to have trended linearly downwards over the course of the year. So that's giving an indication of where the market's going. Now, having said that, if you go a little bit more granular to say uh, on the Transpac lanes, Hong Kong, USA, BAI 34, week by week, the market's looking somewhat flat. But if you look at year on year, the pricing is down 30%. The reason for this is that our indices are a mix of spot and contract. And what we're seeing is the contract rates are holding up the pricing somewhat, but that's not the full picture of the market, which is a downward trend in spot. How are you seeing interest rates and inflation and particularly jet fuel inflation or the higher costs that are leading into these air cargo OPEX sheets? How is all this playing out in air cargo markets? Well, again, as I said before, the market is trending towards normalization. If you look pre-COVID at the fundamentals, we had both low fuel rates and low interest rates, but at the moment, the interest rates are high and fuel is high, which is historically causes a headwind for air cargo. So we'll have to wait and see how this plays out in the market. Turning to Europe, we've had, I don't know if saber rattling is the right word because we've got nuclear threats from Russia at the moment. None of this suggests that airspace is going to open up any time soon or, or that the energy situation in Europe is going to get any less critical. What sort of issues is this situation raising for, for carriers or shippers at the moment? From my understanding, from talking to the traders in the market, there is still concern over factory production due to the energy restrictions over Q4 and Q1 coming up. And so, again, it's a bit of wait and see, but it's not looking so good. And whereabouts is that factory production issues? We saw that earlier in the year in China. Is this in Europe now as well? Yes, this is more in Central Europe, particularly Germany or the main manufacturing hubs in Europe. And as the market slide towards normalization, uh, how is TAC Index planning ahead? Have you got any new products on the horizon? Yeah, we have some immediate products that are being released. So today we have a new charting system, which will display the new high load charts on our TAC dashboard. We also have a new data health product that's available for our forwarder clients. And there's some more products being released later in Q4 and you'll get updates when they're available. Payne Bennett, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast today. Thank you, Mike. Gav, air cargo, as we heard there from Peyton, it's slightly lacklustre, you could say. Lacklustre is probably not the right description for box shipping, is it? It's sort of become, would you call it a, a free-for-all? 
I think free for all might be slightly strong. Look, there's a lot of moving parts to this. It's an interesting picture. So let's just start with the rates. Let's just give you some, start with senators' latest spot freight rate data. I think that's the easiest way. Trans Pacific eastbound is currently at, so that's Asia, US, the US, or North America, West Coast, currently at $3,866 per 40 foot. That's down 35% on mid-August and well, 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 well below the October 2021 peak when they were above $9,000. Asia North Europe is pretty similar. The current rate for a 40 foot is $7,176, about 20% below mid-August and around half the rate of the peak at the beginning of this year when they broached the $15,000 mark. And if you look at the X, XSI graphs for both trades, which track back to September last year. And while it's not exactly, it's not exactly falling off a cliff scenario, there's a steady descent from the heady mountain peaks of a year ago to the flat lowlands with which most container shipping execs are far more familiar with. So there's a couple of things to this, right? These rates are still far higher than pre-pandemic, but you can only imagine what the psychological effect of being trapped in what seems like a never-ending downward spiral is likely to have on those running the P&L sheets, the carriers. Now, that said, the transatlantic trade has been a bright spot for carriers, as we have recently written about, both to Lodestar and Star Premium. However, even there, it looks like the worm has turned. The XSI spot rate for North Europe, US East Coast, currently stands at just over $8,000. And that's down from the peak of $9,000 in early May. And it very much remains to be seen which way the wind will blow as we move into the final quarter. Just on that uh, transatlantic trade, Gav, would you say that this is something to do with the strength of the US dollar or, or how important is the port congestion that we're seeing on the US East Coast? From my understanding, it's a mixture of both. Certainly the, the, the congestion on the US East Coast has definitely, I mean, congestion all over has always had an effect of popping up rates and that US East Coast congestion continues. And part of it's due to a lot of volumes being shifted away from the US West Coast and on Asia, US East Coast ships transiting the Panama Canal and then stacking up in, in New York and elsewhere. But the other thing has been the US dollar. I, I'm listens to Marcus Panhauser, who's head of Ocean Freight for DHL Global Forwarding. He said that the stronger US dollar was definitely having a demand, an effect on US demand for European consumables, for European goods. And why aren't shipping lines, when these rates are coming down, why aren't they just pulling capacity? Well, it looks like they will be. So there's been a notable increase in the number of blank sailings that are advertised for the coming months. Now, the pivot point will be China's Golden Week, which runs from the 1st of October and is traditionally the point at which carriers withdraw some capacity. And that's likely to be the point at which the blankings begin in earnest. We had some data from Sea Intelligence, for example, and initial indications are that the forthcoming blankings could be more severe than even pre-pandemic Golden Week capacity reductions. So the latest data from Sea Intelligence shows that Transpac capacity reductions are expected to be 22 to 28% of deployed weekly capacity in the period following Golden Week, whereas the peak reduction in 2029 was 15 to 17%. So there's, there's a difference there. Asian North Europe, Capacity reduction for in Golden Week will be just under 20%. And then there's been other indications. I, I would 
point listeners in the direction of Matson, the niche US Trans-Pacific carrier, which has pulled its third Trans-Pacific, so pulled it out of service altogether from the beginning of October. This isn't just a, a ship supply issue, is it, Alex? There's quite a lot going on on the macroeconomics, and there's a, certainly a debate about the level of US demand. Obviously, Europe's facing different, more Russia-related threats as well at the moment. But what's your take on all of this? Well, yeah, there's there's a lot of data coming out of China at the moment, which isn't positive for China. The Chinese economy is forecast to expand just 3.5% this year, which is the second slowest rate in 40 years. Its currency is also very weak. It fell to the lowest level against the US dollar since July 2020. And then um, China's share of global trade growth is going to fall 50% by 2026 to just 13%. So there's some pretty rough figures coming out of China. I mean, the foreign trade out of Chinese port hubs fell 15% in year on year in September, according to Numura. So so there, there is quite a lot of bad macroeconomic data for the industry, I'd say. And Numura has just uh, downgraded its uh, forward-looking indicators through right through October and November, I believe, looking at those exports out of Asia as well. Yeah, so we've got a lot of headwinds coming our way. Okay, well, one company that has been brave during COVID when ocean freight rates were spiking was Allseas Global Logistics, who made some big commitments to controlling its own shipping capacity. I'd like to welcome now Bryn Atherton, who's the Liner Development Director at Allseas Shipping Company. Hello, Bryn. Hi, mate. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Are you well? Good. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Very good. Bryn, we discussed this earlier. I want to, to look more generally international freight markets and your new role running All Seas new in-house shipping line, which you launched in June. But we're speaking now in the fourth week of September, and I want to look at the UK and particularly these port strikes. Now, dock workers at Liverpool have walked out for two weeks until 3rd of October looking for higher pay. We have another strike of the UK's largest box port, Felixstowe, due to run from 27th of September to the 5th of October, also overpay, same union. This follows the eight-day strike we had at Felixstowe in August. What impact has all of, of these port strikes been having on your UK business and the logistics efficiency of UK corporate life? Yeah, look, for us, Liverpool port strike is, is, you know, no doubt affecting our scheduling as we, we've got to reroute planned calls. So that means for us delays in arrivals in the main, it also means delays in previously planned connecting feeders. So this leaves us in a position where our vessels cannot then evacuate our empty equipment waiting at Liverpool port, which is meant to be going back out to China or Bangladesh. So it's frustrating, but you know, there's not much we can do about it other than other than re-ring. And um, obviously for us, it's meant that we've had to take the tough decisions to send the remaining vessels for the rest of 2022 to open UK ports and adjust our schedules accordingly. And in terms of when the cargo reaches the UK, Brian, I mean, or, or when you've rerouted it via continental ports, what sort of haulage challenges is that creating for you? I think the problem is the hauliers, unfortunately, have to obviously make contingency plans. And obviously our service is known for calling into Liverpool. So we could all really comment on the Liverpool strike, but the way that affects us is that the hauliers that have been used by ourselves and our clients to operate out of Liverpool, uh, to distribute those containers once they come off vessels, they have to reposition those vehicles. You know, they have to send a lot of vehicles to 
the other ports that we use, or alternatively, they face long periods of time with, without the work coming coming out of Liverpool port. As you mentioned there, you, you're a big user of the port of Liverpool in the northwest of the UK. All Seas launched your own shipping line earlier this year. You dabbled previously. Now, you've committed $150 million to this project. You're chartering in six of your own branded container ships. Can you just explain how you're operating those vessels? What routes you're running? When you'll have all six ships operating? What's the plans going forward? Obviously, the rates and the current market conditions mean that we have to adjust our plans. And the committed spend actually was primarily being on equipment, which remains a priority to the whole group, because this is what's going to allow us to grow through slot sharing agreements in other markets for our current client's business, while we remain focused on further route development for all seas, having that equipment in our armory is the um, primary objective. But given the current market conditions from China to Europe, we were lucky in the fact that we were able to put a hold on the decision to charter additional capacity. So effectively, we can maintain our current service with voyage charter options in addition to our three longer-term charter agreements that we have in place. So you've got three ships of what size and where are you running them at the moment? So each vessel is between 12 and 1,400 TU capacity, depending on the weight. And primarily, they were on the China to UK service. But as rates have begun to fall, we've been able to reduce the capacity out of China and increase the volume being offered to our other service, the Asia Express service, which comes out of Chittagong, which becomes a direct service from Chittagong into Europe. So by reducing the capacity for China cargo, we've increased the allowance for Bangladesh and we've, we've seen the benefits of that. So there's still strong demand out of Bangladesh when those China-Europe rates have, have been dropping off. Is there any other trades that are quite attractive at the moment that you might consider perhaps the transatlantic where rates have sort of booked the trend? I think the transatlantic for everyone, we can see that the rates and the current demand are strong. The space availability on the transatlantic from North Europe isn't great at the moment and rates have remained strong. We have looked at it. We are in a position, as I said, as a charter where we can make decisions quickly. And if one of our vessels is available to us on, on the transit time, isn't, isn't that long. So obviously we can go to the States on the East coast from Liverpool or Rotterdam and potentially, um, explore that market. But at the moment we're focusing on Bangladesh. And how, how do these lower rates work in terms of your charter agreements? I mean, is this all still workable for you, this model? Yeah, I mean, the, look, the, the fact is the, the owners, uh, in the press, the owners are reducing charter rates to follow the reduction in, in the box rates. So, yeah, depending on the market, the charter rates do still work. A lot of it depends on the transit times in those markets. So, yeah, at the moment, luckily, as, as I say, three long-term charters that we've got in place continue to operate well and the ad hoc charters that we're seeing are obviously coming in at a much lower price now. And just how are you viewing the sort of supply demand balance when you look at this from a, a macroeconomic, well, a global shipping front? I mean, we have so many moving parts in terms of consumer demand, but 
a lot of people were predicting that if we got to this post-COVID world where there was downward pressure on rates, we'd see a lot of blanking of capacity by the lines. But so far, at least during the summer of 2022, we haven't really seen that, which has surprised quite a few analysts. I think we're seeing now that the carriers are starting to blank some of those sailings, and probably rightly so, given the fact that we're 10 days away from um, Golden Week in China. So we'd expect there to be a fall in, in demand at least for the start of October. But yeah, it's just a shame that they didn't reduce some of that capacity in August. What What's next for All Seas, Bryn? What have you got planned for later this year, 2023? Are you fighting fires or are you expanding? I suppose really at the moment, we maintain our current service. We'll maintain the business for our current clients coming out of China. And primarily at this moment in time is, is focus more so on, on Bangladesh. That's proven to be very successful service for us. It's still a direct option into Europe and the UK, a quick transit time, and it's been well supported. So that service out of Bangladesh, Bryn, obviously Bangladesh had quite a horrific time uh, recent weeks. How has that affected trade at all? Have you got any sort of feeling for what it's been like on the ground over there? Realistically, mate, we, we spoke with our partners over there at the time and, and they advised us whilst it was very damaging for the country and, and I think certain parts of the economy, especially the farming side and, and obviously the population. For trade, it wasn't actually um, as damaging as, as people might think. I think in the main, most of the manufacturing element bring the cargo to the port of Chittagong in order to load. So we didn't see a dip in volume and, and yeah, trade continued. Bryn Atherson, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast today. Thanks, Mike. Despite all this doom and gloom, we're still seeing some inward investment into the, our industry, aren't we, guys? Well, yeah. I mean, one big story this week, it's not quite inward investment, but there's the news that Singapore's main aviation handling and food company is looking at buying Worldwide Flight Services, WFS, a big global handler. It looks more like a passenger-focused business looking to diversify into cargo, but I, I can't quite see it. SATS is relatively marginal, it's been making losses. WFS would be a very big bite for it. It's slightly sort of reminiscent of the, do you remember the Kuwait's National Aviation Services purchase, John Menzies? That was much smaller and NASA's owned by Agility. And that deal was about $760 million, whereas this WFS deal could be up to $3 billion. WFS is owned by private equity company Cerberus. I'm not sure SATS will be the final answer, but it could well be that other people start to look at WFS again. It's been owned by P for four years, so it's probably time they moved on. I think, Gav, there's been a few other M&A deals. This yeah, there's a bit of stuff going on. Of course, DB Schenker is, is you know in the process of acquiring this USA truck, which wasn't a company we, we didn't know very well, even though it's stock market and NYSC listed. We're assuming that it will, will overcome shareholder legal actions that are accusing USA Truck of effectively underselling the company. So we've got that. That's around $500 million deal. We've had Abu Dhabi Ports has bought a feeder shipping line and invested in an, in an Egyptian terminal. But there's also, there's large, there's higher regulatory barriers now. I think the regulatory stuff's quite interesting because the competition authorities have been sharpening their teeth through the pandemic and they're starting to apply that now. Um, I think most interesting was the failed sale of Maersk container industry, the reefer manufacturing unit of the AP Muller Group. 
which had been due to be sold to China International Marine Containers in a $1 billion deal, but was blocked by both the US Department of Justice and lesser known by Germany's competition regulators as well. In part two, we're looking at decarbonization in the supply chain and how we can all work more productively to cut emissions. But for now, Alex, Gavin, thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Thanks, Mike. Thank you very much, Mike. Welcome to part two of this Lodestar podcast where we'll be taking a look at something I personally believe is very important. And that is the million dollar question of how we're going to transition this fantastic industry of ours to a more sustainable place. That's right. Today, we're talking decarbonization and how we manage it. Helping me explore this complex topic are two world leaders on the subject. First up, we have Dr. Michael Lind who is the Adjunct Professor in Maritime Informatics and Senior Strategic Research Advisor at the Research Institute of Sweden and Chalmers University of Technology. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. And what a fantastic title you have there. Isn't it? Thanks a lot, Mike. And secondly, we have an old friend of mine, and one many of you will know from his varied career as investor, CEO, member of multiple boards. He's also the former director and head of supply chain and transport industries at the World Economic Forum. Welcome, Wolfgang Lehmacher. It's great speaking to you again, Mike. Thank you both for coming on. Now, together, you guys have authored an excellent position paper published by UNCTAD, which is the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. In it, you make the point that if we're going to gradually eliminate greenhouse gases from supply chains, there needs to be broader alignment between sectors and actors. For example, you can't have green ships without green steel. Cleaner transport means you need cleaner alternative fuels. But really, your paper takes all this a step further, if I may say, because it explains exactly how the various actors can align through partnerships. Michael, can you please explain how this partnership concept applies or should apply to international supply chain players. Thanks a lot, Mike. And, and uh, also thanks a million for bringing this very interesting and, and important topic to the center. First of all, I think that nothing is possible to do without the actors coming together. And I mean, the whole supply chain sector is built up on and, and is operating under what we can call a self-organized ecosystem. And that basically means that every player acts on behalf of themselves. And as long as they do not collaborate, we will not have the effects that, that are so needed for decarbonization. So what we felt is that building on our, on our insights related to efforts that are, are happening now in maritime decarbonization, we acknowledge that there is a lot of need for the industry to come together and work together. We see, as you say, uh, that green ships require green steel. Uh, that clean ships operations need alternative fuels. And of course, there's the need for a synchronized approach for ports and ships to work together. And this is not a one-man show. This goes back to that there are numerous actors that need to be involved across the different value chains. So to understand how partnership emerge, we have proposed a framework to categorize and position decarbonization partnerships. 
we see that the most natural decarbonization partnerships emerge from existing business relations, while the most complex are multi-stakeholder groupings spanning across multiple industries and sectors. And basically what we want to arrive at is to encourage that you join different decarbonization alliances in order to get decarbonization chain reaction actually coming together. Michael, in the, in the paper, you talk about three types of partnerships that can help the industry get there, horizontal, vertical, and diagonal. Can you briefly explain what you mean by those terms? So, yes, uh, thanks. And, and uh, this is one dimension of this framework. And uh, as we see it, collaborations can be vertical, horizontal, uh, or diagonal, as you say, and each form of partnership can then focus also on three areas of value chains a company level, industry level, uh, or ecosystem level. So basically this framework is built about, uh, around these two dimensions. And recently we have been observing a profiteration of different types of partnership across the field of decarbonization. And this trend includes the shipping and, and the maritime industry. So the proposed framework formed as a matrix positions the different forms of collaboration that have been arranged according to two dimensions. First, the form of partnership, as we said, vertical, horizontal, and diagonal. And secondly, the focus of the partnership, company, industry, and ecosystem. So vertical partnerships, they are built along the value chains, downstream or upstream or both. They are usually driven by one single stronger player in the chain that aligns, for example, upstream with energy companies to ensure that enough supply of fossil-free energy is available and downstream with customers that use services consuming energy. On the other hand, horizontal partnerships are built between competitors that share common goals, for example, the increase of asset productivity to reduce costs and greenhouse gas emissions. And then finally, diagonal partnerships cut across different stakeholder groups, horizontally and vertically, and include regularly also other actors like international or intergovernmental organizations. But we find these actors also in the other two types of partnerships, as it is usually easy for them to initiate multi-stakeholder partnerships as they instill trust through an impartial approach and proper governance. Wolfgang, uh, Michael mentioned just earlier there that there's different types of partnerships. So the most simple type of partnership involves existing business relationships. Essentially, the most complex are those, and this is, I suppose, quite logical to anyone listening, will be the more stakeholders there are, the more complex it is. But can you give me some examples of, of these different types of partnerships that perhaps already exist or should exist within the shipping and freight world? Sure, Mike. As you said, there is a vertical approach of collaboration. So existing business relationships means mainly vertical collaboration along the value chain. Vertical partnerships that emerge from existing business relations are focusing usually on company benefits. An example is the MERS Green Methanol Partnership between the Danish Shipping Line and renewable energy company Ørsted. They have decided to develop a 675 megawatt power to X facility on the US Gulf Coast. That is expected to produce approximately 300,000 tons of e-methanol per year. And we all know that that Musk has ordered e-methanol powered ships, so they now need to ensure that there is enough fuel. Another example for a vertical partnership is the biofuel trial of CMA CGM that is supported by the Maritime and Port Authority in Singapore. 
horizontal means between peers. So we are talking collaboration across competitors. There is, for instance, the well-known DCSA, the Digital Container Shipping Association, that focuses on standards for the industry, but also the International Association for Ports and Harbors, with its emphasis on climate and energy as a horizontal construct. An example for the more complex, as you mentioned, type of partnership, which is in fact diagonal and a vertical and horizontal at the same time, is the renewable and low carbon fuels value chain industrial alliance. This partnership is focusing on ecosystem benefits so the largest scope we can imagine, and is a collaboration of stakeholders from across the transport fuels and other interrelated value chains from sourcing to end use. It also includes technology and finance providers. The stakeholders represent therefore both the fuel supply and demand sides, as well as civil society organization and uh, governments and the agencies form part of this alliance. You mentioned value chains there, Wolfgang, and I'll just define that for our listeners. That's essentially the simple definition. It's just the process by which a product or service moves from idea to reality, a standard business model. So taking that business model, how do we leverage these partnerships that we're discussing now in a way that proactively removes greenhouse gases from the value chain or that business model? Our belief is that we need to decarbonize across interrelated clusters of value chains. So large-scale decarbonization can only be achieved by synchronizing the developments across critical decarbonization value chains. In shipping, those are the marine fuel, the shipbuilding, and ship operational value chains. And you, you have already said that if we have clean engines, but no clean fuel, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Neither having them, but nobody buys them, is also not bringing us the decarbonization we wish to, to see. So how do these partnerships play out in the whole game? Vertical partnerships, for example, between ports and shipping lines can optimize the flows of goods and reduce waiting times. And of course, pollutions and the whole congestion is, is uh, well known now as well. At ports, through digitalization that brings more transparency and visibility, allowing the move from management based on physical presence of ships to digital visibility powering concepts like just-in-time arrivals and even birth slot management. On the horizontal and industry level, we find less partnerships as this field faces challenges from a competition and a competition law perspective. But that should not hold us back. And one example is the Tankers International VLCC pool, where the bringing together of capacity of tankers in one sharing model has created in 2000, the biggest fleet in this area. And diagonal partnerships that concentrate on industry mainly, or even the ecosystem, they exist as well. And one example is the Getting to Zero Coalition, 
pursued by the Global Maritime Forum in collaboration with the World Economic Forum. And this partnership brings together more than 150 companies with in the maritime, energy, infrastructure, finance sectors. And all that is also supported by governments. So it contributes to decarbonization by preparing a roadmap that contains the necessary steps from developing and testing solutions and enabling environments to getting ready for the rollout. We're already seeing some of these partnerships, as you mentioned there, but how do we speed this process? Is this about the various actors exploring this approach more systematically, perhaps? Is it about regulators pushing harder across the value chain ecosystem? And can I just take this one step further along that value chain? What is the responsibility for the buyers of shipping or air cargo, the shippers themselves, these huge retailers, these massive integrators, the Amazons of this world, where do they fit in terms of that value chain? Thanks a lot, Mike. And I, I think that, uh, first of all, the message is that join uh, different coalitions uh, in different ways. And our viewpoint is, of course, that different actors in that uh, chain or value chain uh, do have different powers and do different roles in those collaboration arenas and, and especially if you go back to the whole situation of, of cargo owners and, and transport buyers uh, they want to see more what is going on inside the black box of transport so on that perspective uh, i think that that the whole collaboration issue is really uh, so important now uh, to overcome this situation what i would say is also that each partnership requires different levels of knowledge and partnership management capabilities and by that its nature and characteristics determine its probably emergence so the more we learn and the more we manage to handle complexities, we will also be able to participate in those different coalitions. So the magnitude or complexity that needs to be dealt with in each case depends on the focus and form of the various different partnerships that we have depicted in the framework. The complexity grows from company to industry to ecosystem, as well as from vertical to horizontal to diagonal partnerships, regulations, Pressures exerted by the market or the population, as well as strategic priorities can also influence the sequence in which partnerships emerge. At the same time, antitrust and competition concerns can interfere, in particular making horizontal partnerships more difficult. So we see that vertical partnerships represent an easier starting point for collaboration that may evolve into industry or ecosystem partners. Diagonal partnerships, which are possibly the only way to achieve alignment across interrelated value chains and different industries are more likely to emerge when neutral partners are engaged. Horizontal partnerships on company, industry, and ecosystem level are usually hardest to achieve due to competition and antitrust trust concerns, but are important as they can satisfy pressing requirements like common infrastructures and standards. A big idea or wider vision can be instrumented to overcome before-mentioned concerns. So the framework also indicates the evolution of complexity and natural routes of learning for establishing partnership. Moving up the learning curve allows actors to gradually expand their competencies in knowledge building and partnership management, enabling them to cope with growing complexities and move from more natural easier to establish partnerships which are limited in impact to those that are more effective but also more complex and demanding. I'm just thinking about something. From what you're saying there, guys, it seems to me that everyone should take some responsibility for their role or their stakeholding in the supply chain or the value chain. But would you say that 
there's more responsibility, particularly a responsibility on the larger actors to incorporate the smaller players into what they're doing and whatever their initiatives are. I mean, how do you define who takes responsibility for that? How do larger players go about bringing those smaller players in? And which companies are we talking about? How do they go about doing this? Here's the challenge, Mike. Uh, in 2021, the about 54,000 cargo and passenger vessels that traveled the oceans were owned by approximately 15,200 companies. 22 larger players own 3,355 ships. While this represents a large share equal to 20% of the CO2 emissions, we also need to bring the remaining 80% on board. And that's exactly what your question points to, because otherwise we will never meet the ambitions set by the IMO in, in 2018. So how to go about that, including the long tail, is probably another million dollar question. I believe that the larger players, and you indicated that as well, and the current partnerships are mainly consist of larger players, that they carry most of the responsibility. I wouldn't say all the responsibility because everybody has to contribute its share. But while some actors like, for example, Mary Aura in Finland, a small short sea company, they have a decarbonization vision and they are implementing it. Many of the smaller actors need support to build the knowledge and the, the capacity. And as the smaller players are well integrated in the larger ecosystem where in fact, we know this all, the larger players play the dominant role with their requirements and their requests. The larger players, and, and we know, for example, container shipping line, lines are, is a very concentrated market, right? So I don't need to name them, but the top 10 have the responsibility to find ways to include in the partnerships, for example, through digital platforms or open virtual innovation programs to bring them on board, make them part of, of the movement and transfer the knowledge they also are now building up. So I think that a lot can be driven by this form of natural collaboration as many work already together and taking advantage of the digital tools which have gotten traction, as we all know, in recent years during, during COVID. And by the way, collaboration and digitalization is the magic duel that can produce a lot of benefits for the society and the economy. Wolfgang Lehmacher, Michael Lind, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike, for giving us access to this wonderful platform. You're very welcome. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenita, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. A shout out to OEC's Jason Haith for his marvellous baritone introduction to this podcast. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.